May 23, 2023. On their 100th birthday, the nonpartisan American Law Institute awards Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts the Judge Henry Friendly Medal, their highest honor. But inside the court, there's cause for optimism. I am happy that I can continue to say that there has never been a voice raised in anger in our conference room. Our court consists of nine appointees by four presidents. We deal with some of the most controversial issues before the country, yet we maintain collegial relations with each other. When I wander down the halls and see a colleague, I am always happy to have the chance to chat. Now, to be fair, there are many days where I don't feel like walking down the halls, um, so you may have to discount that a little bit. And on a final issue of concern inside the court, I want to assure people that I am committed to making certain that we as a court adhere to the highest standards of conduct. We are continuing to look at things we can do to give practical effect to that commitment. And I am confident there are ways to do that that are consistent with our status as an independent branch of government under the Constitution's separation of powers. True crime. Sex. Political conspiracy. Celebrity gossip. Murder. UFOs. Crooked officials. The occult. Assassination. Courtroom drama. Rape. Corporate scams. Scandal sheets. <laughs> Hello everyone, and welcome to Scandal Sheet. My name is Thad Helsley, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Ellie. Ellie, how are you? I'm great. Uh, how are you doing today? Great. Well, you know, I wanted to ask you about that picture yesterday you sent us of those uh, 16, so I counted 16 salmon. Are you feeding all the homeless shelters in the city of Anchorage? No, just myself. Or is that what you guys eat on a uh, just on a regular day? Sixteen yeah, fish on a regular day. Yeah, no. Yeah, it's like the Nathan's hot dog eating contest. Except <laughs> no, it's uh, yeah, we just you know process it and freeze it and have it throughout the winter in the freezer. Okay, yeah. B- building up the inventory. Gotcha. Yep. And we are pleased to welcome back New York City's multi-year super lawyer, David Grover. From the firm of Grover and Fenster Stock. Welcome back to the pod, David. Hey, Thad. Hey, Ellie. So happy to be here. So happy to see you too. Always enjoy being on this pod. Best pod out there. Thank you so much. And of course, we are also joined by our brilliant AI engine, Bernice. Thank you. It's a good thing artificial intelligence is becoming more prominent, as organic intelligence among humans is clearly receding rapidly. Ouch, babe. Okay, so David Nelly, last year we did a couple of episodes about the Supreme Court, and David was nice enough to join us for both of those. And the climax of last year's term was something called the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health decision, which struck down the 50-year-plus Roe versus Wade ruling from back in the early 70s. The result was through the question of uh, abortion's legality back to the individual states. Now, a lot of Americans thought that was pretty big-time stuff, and it was rather controversial. But this year's Supreme Court term 
just might have topped that landmark year. Because while most people describe last term as a victory for states, right, this year's term seems that to suggest that there actually aren't any states' rights <laughs> or White House rights or congressional rights. What do you think about that, David? Well, I think that the majority in these cases would probably disagree with that assessment. Okay. They would argue that every case is different and their their logic has, is beyond is with case law and history and precedent and the way they interpret some of these statutes. So it's definitely a mixed bag, but I certainly understand why you'd say that. And there's some of that they did take away, certainly um, executive power. I think that was certainly true in a lot of these cases. And I think some of these things will be litigated for many years, many years going forward, because these things never go away as quickly as people think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ellie, what do you got? Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, you know, the the big thing about their, la- you know, their decisions last summer that I was a little confused about was how the Supreme Court, it seemed like once they would make a decision, decisions, they go down in the history books as this is the precedent. And then that is how we're going to have these rulings for the rest of time, right? And they kind of shape our culture and how things are done in the United States. But then they went back and they they walked back their Roe v. Wade decision. And then now this year, they've kind of reversed some of their other decisions. And even Kavanaugh in some of his own writings has said a lot of things will need to be re- visited later on. And so it seems like the Supreme Court is now not so much this very decisive, you know, make a one-time historical decision type of body. It seems like now they're becoming similar to the rest of the legal system where they can make a decision and then walk back their decision and then make another decision all about the same topic. And so I think it's just interesting for someone like me who has no legal education whatsoever, except like my ninth grade social studies, it, it kind of throws the whole concept of the Supreme Court on its head. Am I, am I right about that? Like, this is still weird, right? I think I, I think I think you make a great point. And I think your point is even more well taken because you're not an attorney and you're a citizen and you see what's going on out there. And I think in the old days, you'd have major cases decided and that would be the law of the land for it essentially forever. And now it's the law of the land until a new court takes over, until new justices come in and change things up. So, yes, great point. And I think there's a concern. Does this destroy or, or inhibit the legitimacy of the court? Right. So now when citizens like yourself see these things happen, you say to yourself, well, wait a minute. Is this the law or is this politics? And I think that's the concern people have. I think that's the concern Chief Justice Roberts has, frankly. Um, so I think that is an issue. That is a problem. That's something that we'll see how it plays out over time. But that it's definitely a concern of people who follow the Supreme Court. So here's here's what I thought we would do. I, I pulled out four decisions, which I think most of the people out there, I mean, I know there are um, other podcasts that, that cover the Supreme Court, but I'm going to gamble that most of our listeners are not among them. So <laughs> among the listeners of, you know, uh, strict scrutiny or, you know, <laughs> Citizen's Guide to the Supreme Court or whatever. But um, so so the, hopefully this will be new information for them. But they probably have heard of some of this because even on, you know, CNN and things like that, uh, these things have been touched upon. But so I was going to go ahead and pull out four cases. Bernice will give us the, the, the briefest of summaries of what the case is about. And then we'll lean on you, David, to 
unravel this for us, if that's okay. Sure. Great. Okay. So the very first case is called 303 Creative LLC versus Alinus. And uh, Bernice, why don't you tell us what that is? Lori Smith, a website designer and devout Christian, wants to expand her business to include wedding websites, but only for opposite-sex couples. Smith is challenging a Colorado law that prohibits most businesses from discriminating against LGBTQ customers. She argues that requiring her to create websites for same-sex weddings would violate her right to freedom of speech. David, I was going to ask you about that because there was no actual case. It was entirely hypothetical. No one actually approached her to make a website for a gay couple. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why it's bizarre. Yeah. So how do you do that? How do you how do you take a case all the way to the Supreme Court without actually? Ha- I thought it had to be an actual case that had gone through. You know, well, I went to the state courts and the district courts and the appellate courts and the blah 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 blah. And there's no actual case here. And she only mentions one person. And when when everybody in the media called him up, he said, "Actually, no, I'm straight. I'm married to a girl, and I don't know why. I never called her. Why did she use my name? I don't know why." So. <laughs> So basically, yeah, to, ha- to bring a case really anywhere, you need something that's called standing. Right. Okay. So you have to be the one that's injured, affected by it. Meaning, uh, Thad, God forbid you were hit by a car today. I couldn't sue the car. You could sue the car. Why? I'm not injured. I wasn't a party to that. So you need standing. And here, yes, it was kind of strange, kind of fascinating that she didn't, by most standards did not have standing nobody really asked her to do a website for a gay marriage so she brought something else up and there you know in law there's exceptions to everything there's always a way around things so her argument was basically she was preemptively doing it to avoid fines to avoid violating this law so she came in honestly the court if they wanted to could have easily said hey no standing here. I'm sorry. You can't bring this case. They wouldn't have they even chose- taken. They wouldn't have even taken the. Uh, I mean, they get. I mean, you've told us before. They get thousands of uh, applications every year for cases, right? And they only take like what eighty, seventy five. Yeah. 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 And they- <laughs> but they took this one. You know, but they wanted to do this. You know, this was part of the plan, right? Yeah. So because yeah, they do. They wanted it, and there, there is some precedent there are some cases in the past where people have brought cases preemptively okay there's a law you can't do something so instead of violating the law they brought it before that to get a decision made so it's unusual most courts would have probably said no standing um but in this case of course said you know something the hell with standing there's enough standing because you would have been violating the law so we'll take it anyway so these, these things are I, I would say was a very interesting decision by the court to take this but they wanted it and they basically said to the hell standing we're going to take the case anyway and there was a similar case i i don't i didn't write it down here i, I know i can look it up there was a similar case a number of years back about uh people who made wedding cakes and they didn't again this is about weddings so and they didn't want to make a wedding cake for a gay couple. And that also passed, correct? Yeah, well, different Yeah, well, different judges, different justices, and also a different set of facts, a different legal argument. Okay. Okay? So the legal argument here, we all, you know, we all get the obvious part. 
discriminate. There's a statute in Colorado. You can't discriminate due to uh, homosexuality or gay rights. You can't sexual orientation. Okay, you can't discriminate. So, but in this case, the web designer said, yeah, but they are violating my right to free speech. So by making this website, was it was it free speech or freedom of religion? Was she was she objecting to the fact that she was like, I think it was free speech. It was free speech. Okay, it's free speech. Yeah, I think she argued for freedom of religion, but that wasn't the crux of the case. It was free speech. So she's basically saying, I'm being forced to say certain things. I'm being forced. The government can't force me to say things that I don't want to say. So that that was her argument against the whole concept of the discrimination part. So it was creative. I guess no pun intended. That was the name of her website. Yeah. no No pun intended. And she came out and said, this is not something I believe in due to religious reasons. And I didn't want to have to do it. Now, there are many arguments against what she said. One was, of course, the standing issue, which you you brought up. The other issue is, well, if she puts out this website for this gay marriage, it's it's, it's them speaking. Okay? It's not her speaking. She's not speaking on their behalf. Okay, I have a website for my law firm, for example. Sure you do. Okay, when you look at that, what do you think? Well, you look at the contents and you say, well, this is what this law firm is saying. You don't say, well, no, but I have a web designer. That web designer doesn't take any responsibility for what's on that site. And nobody would say, yeah, but, you know, the web designer is advocating for lawyers in New York. Well, they're really not. They put the website together. So she was able to make an argument that, no, it is free speech and they're forcing me to do something against my will and i think that's really what that was the the argument that swayed the majority in that case so and you know i could say well i really hate lawyers so i could just refuse to to do your website <laughs> because i'm like shakespeare first let's kill all the no, lawyers no no no, no. <laughs> well remember protected class right so lawyers unfortunately us attorneys were not a protected class uh-huh so a little different. You could do, you know, you you could say that seems like something you could change as an attorney. Yeah, I'd like to change that. Did either of you listen to the actual oral arguments for that particular case? Parts, parts, yeah, parts of it. Okay, there was there was a part. Actually, there's a part. You know, these guys actually they they have uh, more often than not they sort of have a good time. They they do a lot of jokes. So Alito, when it's his turn to question the guy, actually the guy who's who he would basically later rule uh, in his favor, he's like, okay, let me give you some hypotheticals. What if a black kid goes up and his parents go up to Santa Claus in a, in a, um, in a mall during Christmas and they want to take a picture with Santa Claus and Santa Claus says, nope, I don't take pictures of black kids. I'm white supremacist Santa. So, and, and, and well, that was it yeah, that was the, that was the main argument of the dissent. Okay, the majority here did kind of jump into that a little bit. They didn't want this to be that. You know, this court does have they want to be so perceived sometimes doing the right thing, and they basically it doesn't apply to goods. It only applies to free speech. So they really want to narrow it just to free speech. Whereas the dissent says, "Well, wait a minute, this is not. This can be interpreted different ways." And you're right. 
you know, do you have to serve a black person in a restaurant if they come in and say, well, it's against my free speech? I mean, you can always make an argument for anything. So I think the majority basically said, no, limit it just to this. And of course, the dissent says, well, this is kind of a slippery slope. And who defines free speech? Can it be extended to be almost everything? And the majority would tell you no. They would say no. We're saying this is not it. You still have to sell to people of a protected class. You still have to do business with people of the protected class. But you can't force them to violate their free speech rights. So, again, it's, you know, which which side. Where are we drawing the line? Okay, we're saying cakes and websites. But, I mean, it just it does feel like a slippery slope, doesn't it? I mean, if a gay couple walks into a grocery store and tries to buy a dozen eggs. You know, and how are you going to know they're gay unless they have their arms around each other or something like that? But I mean, what if the clerk says, well, it's a violation of my, you know, free speech to, you know, put these eggs over the scanner? Well, Gorsuch would say no. That's clearly not a free speech. Okay. So, yeah, he would say he would say no, no, no. Um, Could a photographer not want to take picture of gay kids in a high school yearbook? They talked a lot about photographers. They talked about writers. You know, they were saying like, you know, most websites and I know this for a fact since I used to make websites for a living are just templates. You know, they're they're not there's nothing unique. There's no speech in a website. You've got like 20 to choose from and you just slap somebody's name on top of it. And that's probably what yours is, David. (laughs) That's when they made it a little little, little better than that. (laughs) Right. You can customize it a little bit or whatever. But I mean, most people do it themselves. You know, they just go to there's so many tools and they just like pick the template and push the button and it's done. But so how is that free speech? I don't know. It's like saying free speech is blue versus green. Yeah, again, it's a ma- it's a matter of interpretation, a matter of how you want to see it. Um, you could cer- certainly argue may- maybe this wasn't the best case to make this decision on. Um, I think for both for everything we just said, besides standing, which is you're right, it's not really her website. Yeah, she's putting it together, but she's not promoting gay marriage by just making this website for somebody. So I I see the arguments of the majority here. I don't know if it was the best set of facts to use to come to this decision. And it almost seems like with these types of cases, you have like a Venn diagram, you know, where like one bubble is like free speech and then one bubble is like the commerce and doing business with people of a protected class. And there's going to be that overlap gray area, you know, in probably all of these instances and that's the part that's like extremely difficult to regulate and that's the part that you know is going to take up all the news cycles and you know like dominate the conversation right because it's like that little part where it's impossible to pick apart you know the the commerce versus the right to free speech i mean and, and to your point before you know one day this could be overruled by a different court very or true. a different, you know, or a different set of facts could come out, and they say this isn't it. You know, people are always going to try to push the envelope. You know, will that photographer try next time? You know, will it be somebody else? So, you know, will it be a newspaper? So, there's a lot of things where people push the envelope. This decision is, you know, it's got. It, I'm not. I don't know if it's a slippery slope as much as some ambiguity of how this could be interpreted. Um, you know, if you listen to the majority, they say not really, no. No, it doesn't apply to goods, just to free speech. But again, what does that mean? 
I don't know. You know, it's, I guess it's a case by case. But at least it opens the door for people to discriminate, for lack of a better term, discriminate to not avoid a free speech violation. Bernice, what's next on, uh, on our docket here? Harvard College's admissions policy, which uses race as one factor among many when determining its incoming class, has been under attack for years by anti-affirmative action activist Edward Bloom and his organization, Students for Fair Admissions. SFFA sued Harvard College alleging that the process violates Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 by discriminating against Asian American applicants in favor of white applicants. Harvard admits that it uses race as one of many factors in its admissions process but argues that its process adheres to the requirements for race-based admissions outlined in the Supreme Court's decision in Grutter v. Bollinger, 2003. A very similar case against the, the University of North Carolina, a public school, was considered in tandem. So, David, I mean, this case sort of seemed odd to me. It's an affirmative action in student admissions. And when I first heard about it, I thought, oh, okay, well, this is a bunch of uh, white people complaining about uh, too many black people getting in. Turns out it's Asian students complaining about white people. <laughs> and I would also just like to point out the, the irony that, like, isn't it every single justice went to Yale? Yale or Princeton or Harvard. So, like, I mean, shouldn't they all all recuse themselves? Like, I mean, come on. This is not exactly <laughs> the type of, you know, case that, like, this very exclusive group of, like, very, you know, preppy best school lawyer or judges should be, like, hearing, in my the, own opinion. The, the newest justice, what is her name? Um, Jackson. 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 She had been on the board of Harvard. She she participated. She didn't vote though. She on did. that one, she had, she had went in terms of ethics. I guess we'll get to later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> on that one. Yeah, on that one. yeah. But like, uh, I think Kagan had actually been the dean of Harvard Law School, and she didn't recuse herself. That was years ago, you know. So she, you know, but whatever. Still, I mean, just like Elliot said. Like, sorry, sorry. And yeah, sorry for the tangent, but uh, that, that no, it's not a tangent. Conversation. Yeah. It's like okay, yeah, they all went to the same school, you know. <laughs> like um, anyway, so yeah, David, what's your opinion on that? You know, as opposed to the prior case we discussed, I actually think this was a perfect case for uh, the Supreme Court to use okay. in terms of the fact pattern. Okay, as I understand it, this was financed by a conservative person, not an attorney, a conservative white person. Right. So. Well, but the, the, the members, 20,000 members are all Asian young people yes. and their families. So the yes. So what they did, which I thought was very, very smart to not look like this was an anti-black thing. They basically said, wait a minute, equal protection by by this affirmative action, you are discriminating against Asians. Kind of a, a really smart way to do this, right? A smart argument. It's a 14th Amendment the, thing, isn't it? Yeah. They use the yeah. same thing as board versus education they use for this. Yeah. It may not have gone down as well if maybe it was white people saying reverse discrimination, right? But this, much smarter because there were Asians who were, in fact, in effect, discriminated against. So the court basically said no discrimination, Okay. No discrimination against Asians, no discrimination against blacks. Um, we want a, a colorblind society, and this is not acceptable. 
However, the court did throw a little a bone to an affirmative action by saying the color of your skin, being black, can be considered. It can be a factor. It can't be a factor. Don't look at say, you know, you're black, you get in. But if race was an issue, if race something you, you had to overcome as part of your life growing up, a college can actually use that as a factor. But they can't simply say, okay, we're taking you because you're black. We're not taking you because you're Asian. We cannot because you're white. So, um, and, you know, and of course, the, the dissent had a different, different opinion, went over the history of, of discrimination in our country. And this is one way we're able to kind of remedy it um, with the Civil Rights Act, things like that. Um, and of course, you know, a lot of people also brought up the fact of legacy admissions. That's like a big thing right now. Is that, is that kind of a, uh, white affirmative action legacy admissions? If you're familiar with that, of course, that's where some of these big, very prominent schools admit children and grandchildren of their alumni. So if you're, and back then, of course, who went to a lot of these schools? Well, rich white people. So if you're a rich white person, you might have a way to get in. So the argument also is, well, maybe affirmative action helps kind of contradict or help rectify that discrepancy, which you're allowed to do. You know, legacy admissions are legal. They're correct. They're constitutional. So, well, it's part of the business model, too, right? I mean, you depend on the donations of people, you know, after they get out of school. I mean, my school is always hitting me up for money. You know, the college I went to and, um, you know, and my daughters, you know, I paid for her education and they're still hitting me up for money. She <laughs> get that graduated too. for years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and, and think about it. Yeah. It's like, that's a benefit of you donating to that university, you know, is like the opportunity for your kids to probably be able to get into that university, you know? So yeah. Benefit. And, and the, yeah. The, like you said, to your point, the argument is when they don't admit legacies, their donations go down. Their endowment goes down. Right. So I, I, I right. think that is part of their argument. And again, there's nothing illegal about it. You're allowed to do it. So, you know, the majority here was really, hey, you know, things are better now. You don't, a, you don't want to discriminate against Asians. That's wrong. And affirmative action in general, well, you know, colorblind society. And um, Clarence Thomas jumped in, of course. He was one of the dissents as well. And he said, I like to think things are different now since when he went to school. And yeah, I mean, I think it was it was a perfect case because of the Asian component. But, you know, of course, very, very controversial around the country. Well, let me ask you this. So, I mean, technically, um, affirmative action. I mean, this was like the last piece of actual affirmative action. The, the actual name affirmative action was outlawed like during the Clinton administration. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, it was officially... You, you can't, you've got to be um, uh, not race conscious, I guess is the way they put it. However, the way it's been done, so I do a lot of uh, nonprofit work for um, uh, civil rights organizations, nonprofit organizations, and they're always advocating for DEIA, diversity, equity, inclusion, mm -hmm. and uh, access for, for people with disabilities. So it's, it's sort of a form of ethnicity, consciousness, consciousness is about a lot of things, gender, ethnicity, you know, social status, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And 
does this have long-term impact on these DEIA? And, and I worked at a Fortune 500 company for 17 years, and we were having lectures about DEIA twice a year. We'd have to go sit there for half a day and, and listen to a consultant tell us about our policies. Does this have an impact? Yeah, absolutely. It takes away it, it, schools by this decision will be much less diverse, right? Yes. I mean, I think the majority would argue, yeah, argue, yes, well, I guess you'll have more Asians there. I guess that's a minority, right? So, you know, you'll have an Asian, maybe a larger Asian population, but you will have less maybe black, maybe Hispanic, and maybe that's not good for society. Maybe that's not good for the school. And, you know, they're basically, but they are also saying, hey, schools, find a way around this. Don't use race as the ultimate decider. Use other things. But race, but like I said, they throw my bone. Race can be a factor. Just can't be the factor. And I think that's the, uh, that's the hope. And this was also one of those where Kavanaugh basically said, you know, like this is something that probably will be revisited again in the future based on the changing demographic makeup of the U.S. population. So, you know, this is one of those things that will probably be reopened and redecided in the future anyway, you know. Well, yeah, I, you know, you, could, you can almost foresee certain things happening, right? So when they say in their opinion, you could use race as a factor, well, how big of a factor? <laughs> you know, could it be the majority factor, a small factor? Can a school admit someone for um, being black and maybe one other small thing? So, you know, we're going to have to see how this is interpreted down the line. Um, but it, it, it's certainly a very powerful decision. And uh, I don't think it'll be overturned anytime soon, but it could be clarified sometime in the next year or two in, in future terms of the court. One thing I just do want to throw out, uh, so part of the evidence that came out in, in uh, the briefs that were submitted was that the population of the United States that can be called Asian, Chinese, Japanese, et cetera, et cetera, is about 6%. The population of the Harvard student body today, before this decision, was 20%. So I don't think they were being heavily discriminated against. Well, I, I think no one, I mean, the argument is that individuals were so there were there were Asians who were not getting into that school with higher grades than maybe a black or hispanic person that is the, so argument. the argument that is the argument yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. and that's where they had and that's kind of how they, they got in, they got to that point and of course just had to say racism is a big big problem and we can't ignore it we keep colorblind is not a reality and this will create future problems for our society so that's where they're that's their other argument You know, no one wants to be in a car or a motorcycle accident or a slip and fall that causes physical or mental damage. And even construction accidents are on the rise today. But if you or a friend or family member are injured, you need a professional and understanding law firm that has experience in getting the most for their clients' injuries. And you can find all of that at the law firm of Grover and Fensterstock. They are a premier personal injury firm located in New York City, and their track record is excellent. They have years of experience working and winning for their clients. Now, they offer a free consultation, and they only get paid when you get paid. So how do you get in touch with them? Well, you call David Grover at 1-866-99-LAWYER and mention that you were referred by 
the Scandal Sheet podcast, one of your favorite podcasts, of course. So David Grover at Grover and Fenster Stock, 1-866-99-LAWYER, 866-99-LAWYER. You'll be glad you called. So let's move on to Allen versus Milligan. Bernice, can you help us out with this one? After the 2020 census, Alabama created a redistricting plan for its seven seats in the United States House of Representatives. Roughly 27% of the state's residents are black, but only one of the seven districts in the plan is a majority black district. Registered voters and several organizations challenged the map, arguing that the state had illegally packed black voters into a single district while dividing other clusters of black voters across multiple districts. They argued the new map effectively violates Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which bans racial discrimination in voting policies. This was this was one that, that liberals actually were were happy about because there have been a lot of cases before the court uh, that had that dealt with um, basically you know gerrymandering the voting districts and this was one and usually what the court would say is like it's not up to us leave it to the states in this case they said they struck down the state yeah the uh, under the, the one of the last enforceable provisions of the Voting Rights Act and I think they also as like the last case probably took a good one factually, right? Alabama is 27% black. So what they did there, what the Alabama legislator did was create one district that was almost all black. One third of the entire black community in Alabama is in one district and then split the other two thirds into six other districts. So by doing that, they pretty much guaranteed that one di- one congressman, congressperson from that state would be a Democrat, potentially black, and the other six would be Republicans, presumably white. So I think what the court did here, as opposed to some of the prior cases, and says, in the past, they've said, look, we're not going to question politics. We're not going to question gerrymandering the way you draw up these districts, if it helps one party over another, so be it. The court, though, drew the line on racial, racial gerrymandering. They said, that's not what you could do. That's what you're doing here. Politics aside, Democratic side, Republicans aside, you're actually splitting them up by race. And that is a bridge too far, at least for, well, the three uh, left-leaning justices and two of the more moderate Justice Roberts and Kavanaugh, and Kavanaugh's become a moderate over these last few years, very pragmatic. They said that's too far for them. We can't have a racial gerrymandering. And that's why, yeah, that's how they justify the decision. So in a weird way, it is sort of consistent with the previous thing about affirmative action, right? They're basically saying you can't use race. You can't, well, that's a good point. I never thought about that. You can't, Use race when deciding. You're right. You know, it's a great point. I never read that anywhere, Thad. Good job. But it's, but I mean, it's, it's just funny because, you know, everybody, the Democrats were like starting their hair on fire for the affirmative action thing. And then they were happy about this one. <laughs> but it's sort of the same case in a way. Yeah, yeah. You be, you, They're saying, okay, you got to be colorblind. Poof. <laughs> yeah. Got to be. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, of course, but, you know, to, so you thought, remember, you did have a pretty significant dissent here. That said, that says no, no, no. The states could do what, in essence, whatever they want. Alito and Thomas. So, yeah, yeah. They said no, nah, no. Nah, we don't get involved. 
the states could draw up their own districts. We don't want to get involved in that stuff. But all it takes is, uh, you know, Justice Roberts, who does care about the court's history and reputation, and Kavanaugh, who is very, in my opinion, pragmatic and moderate. All it takes is two. All it takes is two, and you win, and you have your majority. Do you have a take on this one, Ellen? Um, honestly, I didn't really follow this one that much because I am like very hard pressed to even follow Alaska voting <laughs> things. And even though we say that Al- Alaska is like the Alabama, of the North, Woo! <laughs> you know, I still didn't really follow it that much. Wait, uh, I didn't know. Can can I vote? Can women vote? Wow. <laughs> yeah, right. But no, that's actually just kidding. Just kidding. Yeah, no, now I just learned a lot from David about that. So and, and and you did bring up a great point that in in a lot of ways, it actually is the same case, you know, as like the affirmative action where you can't use race, you know, so you just kind of can't pick and choose, you know, you can't cherry pick your very specific agendas. Yeah, this court is definitely a let's be colorblind kumbaya in a way. Let's be colorblind kind of a country and not look at race. Um, in any in any of these things, race should not be a consideration. And obviously, the other side says, well, it's hard to ignore it. So that's really the, the conflict we're always going to have on these cases. So why don't we move on to the next one? Bernice, why don't you help us here? In 2020, then-presidential candidate Joseph Biden promised to cancel up to $10,000 of federal student loan debt per borrower. After winning the election, the Biden administration announced its intent to forgive via executive action, $10,000 in student loans for borrowers with an annual income of less than $125,000. Nebraska and five other states challenged the forgiveness program, arguing that it violated the separation of powers and the Administrative Procedure Act. Ellie, you've a lot closer than David and I to remembering when you were going to college. And I don't know if you had to take a student loan or not. I did, but you know, it's long since been paid off. I would imagine that's the case with David as well, but yes, it is. Yes, it is. But what about you? I mean, do you think this is fair? I mean, I'm in the boat of people who worked really hard to uh, pay off my student loans as quickly as possible. And so therefore I think everybody else should have to do that too. Okay. You know, it's not smart to be an 18-year-old taken out of the equivalent of a mortgage payment <laughs> on loans. And so if you're going to make that decision, you got to, you know, you make your bed, you got to lay in it. So okay. that, that's that's my opinion. I see that the Supreme Court kind of shared my opinion on that one. <laughs> Although they didn't call me. they We just so happened to have the same opinion on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, you know, so many other people uh, during the oral arguments were making, were talking about fairness because it wasn't just the fact that, well, I paid my student loans. How come these guys don't have to? It was also like, well, what if I didn't go to college? What if I started a business and I got a, a small business loan? You know, what if I bought, a, I got a mortgage to buy a house? You know, what if I did, you know, what about those loans? How are those loans different than this loan? Well, to play to play to play devil's advocate, yeah. you know, we had the we had the PPP a few years ago where businesses received loan forgiveness. You know, you have certain during COVID, when during during a national emergency, during COVID, right? You had mortgage, you had mortgages that were um, put on hold. So people are people do benefit from different things. Just to 
throw it out there. I'm not going to give it. But we're not in the middle that, of but, a national emergency like that right now. I mean, you can't describe what we're in right now as anything close to when a million people were dying, right? No, but that's this is kind of right. how it's based. This is how this whole case was based on. Okay, so uh, you're saying, uh, right. give us your well, take. Let me, I, let, let me ju- yeah, yeah. Let me jump into a couple okay. things here. Well, first of all, let's t- let's go all the way back to standing. Mm. Okay, this was an issue in this case as well. Who had standing to bring this case? People, you know, entities tried, it failed. So what's funny is a Missouri... Nebraska. Um, I guess, I'm, was it Nebraska? It's Biden versus Nebraska no. is the case. No, 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 no. But it was a Missouri state agency. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. That brought this case because they were contracted by the government to collect on these loans. And their argument was for standing was, well, if we get rid of these loans, we're not going to make money. So kind of a funny roundabout way for standing. And, and like we said earlier, um, standing, I guess, is in the eye of the beholder, right? I mean, the court easily could have said there's no one here for standing. I mean, you're not really – are you an injured party if you're not making money on these loans, I guess? But they wanted to hear the case, so they went forward on it. So that, that's the first argument. And the other point here is how – okay, so when a, when a Congress – makes laws and delegates, right? They always delegate to entities. For example, um, Congress levies taxes. When they levy taxes, well, the congressmen don't go home and knock on doors and collect money from their constituents, right? They have the IRS. When they make environmental laws, they have the EPA. So they have entities and they give them the right to do certain things. So they did this here and they gave in the HEROES Act, which was post 9-11, they gave the education department the right to modify or cancel student loans due to the emergency of 9-11. So it was in the statute. Now, this 9-11, statute. 2001? Yeah. Oh, okay. That's a long time ago. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So this was the statute that the Biden administration was using to cancel student loans. In fact, President Trump used this exact statue to pause student loan payments during the pandemic. Mm. Now, Biden came out and went much further, was using this statute to cut, to get rid of these loans. Forgive them entirely. Forgive them entirely, or at least up to a certain amount up of money. Up to 20000 yeah. And up to a certain amount of income. Um, but yeah, regardless, so he was using that, that statute. And that's where the court said, hey, no, no, no. So while Biden was, the administration was maybe to the letter of the law, correct. The statute does allow them to do that. The court is doing something or pushing something that they call the major question doctrine. And what that says, it's, kind of, it's a relatively new term. They said, look, if it's a big thing, a major question, we don't, we're not going to necessarily allow the executive branch to use verbiage in a law that isn't specific to that instance. So when they, you know, they're basically saying, look, yeah, the law does allow them to do that, but we don't think Congress really intended that back in September, 2001, that they would, okay, COVID is an emergency. Therefore we are going to forgive student loans. So I think to the letter of the law, the administration was allowed to do it, but the court is saying, no, yeah, the, the statute says it, but it's not really that clear. And for a major question, we want the Congress to be really clear before you do something big. 
So it's great that we talked about some of these cases, but at the very same time, while all of these landmark decisions are coming out, there's also this stuff that leaks out about, um, let's just say, uh, questionable ethical improprieties by a number of the justices and not all just the conservatives. Sotomayor also had an issue. So, Ellie, what do you think? I mean, uh, are all the Supreme Court justices crooks? Well, and well, they're just they're just now being very wishy-washy on all of their decisions. You know, it's no longer like one set decision for the history books and we're done. It's, you know, eh, maybe we'll revisit it in three years. We'll see. You know, so, yeah, I don't know. I think I'm uh, uh, I'm not surprised by any of this, uh, you know, stuff that's coming out about, you know, like Sotomayor or Alito or like, you know, any of these fancy Alaska fishing trips that they're going on. Um, no surprise. <laughs> but David, you know, one of the things that got me about this was that there's 870 federal judges, district court, appellate court, et cetera, et cetera. And they're all subject to something called the Code of Conduct for United States Judges, which was last updated in 2019. Now, the only nine people excluded from that Code of Conduct are the members of the Supreme Court. How come is that? Well, I mean, it's, uh, I'm going to quote, uh, uh, was a creator phrase in Greece? The rules are, there ain't no rules. I think <laughs> the, the Supreme Court could do whatever they want for the most part. Yeah, they're not subject to these rules. They have no boss and no, someone they report to. And yeah, look, the you know, these things are, most people say somewhat problematic, right? There, there's two parts to it. Should a Supreme Court justice be taking gifts, money, trips from not only anybody, but especially someone who's got cases right. before the court? I mean, if I, if I sued you, Thad, and then we went before a judge. And you found out I was taking that judge on extra, extravagant vacations. You'd be a little concerned, wouldn't you? I would. I would indeed. So, yeah. So the basic rule is not only impropriety, but the appearance of impropriety. And that's kind of what here, right? So obviously, probably the most egregious would probably be Justice Thomas with, uh, with Harlan taking these trips, having his house bought and his mom living rent free. Also, his his ward being uh, tuition being paid one hundred and hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. Woo! Well, that was, that was the stranger one. Yeah, the uh, grant. Nice school, man. Nice school. Yeah. <laughs> Not bad. Very strange. And and he paid for that. And you know, I know. I and I guess the argument would be, I guess he didn't have too many cases before the court. Maybe that's the argument that maybe if there's an appearance. It wouldn't be tolerated. Yeah, it wouldn't be tolerated in any other court with any other judge. But of course, he's also caught some flack for being involved and not recusing himself in the January sixth election debates because his wife is a big activist in trying to overturn the election of twenty twenty. Yeah, and he actually was involved in the debate and the voting in these cases. So, you know, that, that's somewhat problematic too. And, you know, he did, the other part here is disclosure. You know, they are supposed to disclose. They are subject to, to two things, disclosure and recusal. So those are two things that they are supposed to do, even in the Supreme Court. Okay, and they didn't disclose. The media had to figure this out, right? Yeah, okay. but which, yeah, and he said, I didn't need to. He was told he didn't need to. But what's funny is, in the past, when someone else paid the tuition, he did disclose it. So something happened, 
and he decided not to disclose. And, and I, I think his is probably the biggest uh, egregious one, uh, but they'll have it. Uh, conservative supermajority, is that the thing that happened? <laughs> yeah, maybe that was it. Yes. It's like, wow, all of a sudden, because it used to be like Thomas was like everybody would vote one way, and Thomas was always like the extreme, like, crazy right wing like he voted it was always every decision was eight one eight one eight one eight one yeah yeah and he was the one and now he's in the majority all the time so you know but there's a lot of stuff here look justice roberts has his own issue also right he does with his wife yeah his wife an attorney became a legal recruiter who gets paid to fill spots at these big law firms yep who have business before the supreme court before the court yeah now, Justice Roberts says, I guess not surprisingly, did actually report these things. So it, w- it was reported. And, and I think that's this is a little less egregious because to me, and I think most people would say it's not really an issue unless there's a whole lot of attorneys going to one firm and that firm has a lot of cases before you. But, you know, again, appearance of impropriety, right? It, it's definitely something. And, you know, um, it's not like these guys make money like see i mean they only make like two hundred thousand bucks a year i mean uh you know after taxes that's going to be like more like a hundred thousand so it's not like you're not going to get rich being a supreme court judge now you can write books you can have speaking fees all of that stuff that a lot of these guys do right to make extra money but you know and i'm sure they do depend on their wives to you know to bring in the bacon because you know i mean a hundred thousand bucks is you know, nobody's gonna get rich on that you can't live no, in dc no, no. for a hundred thousand bucks so and- Goodbye, but they also they also can't get fired. I know that's true. I know. So how you know what kind of income would you make? You know, would you be willing to settle for if you knew you could not get fired ever until you died? Which is true. I mean, they, 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 <laughs> I'd settle for a lower income if it meant I would could never get fired. <laughs> it's good. Look, but but and, and you, a great segue by the way you mentioned about money, Justice Sotomayor. All right, so. She did a couple things that probably weren't so great either. So what she did, there's two parts of what she did. One was more financial, is that she had her staff help promote her book pretty much. Make sure libraries bought them, make sure stores bought them. They said, you know, her defense is, well, not really true because it was more so that she was going to speeches and wanted to make sure there was enough books available for everybody. But, you know, it's something that... But, I mean, they went out of their way to twist some arms, right? Like, she would go, she'd like to, she would be, have an appointment to speak at Georgetown Law School, let's say. And then, if they didn't buy enough books, then someone on their staff would call them up and twist their arm, right? I mean, (laughs) and say, okay, you only bought 250 books. Look, you got to buy like a thousand. And and you can't do that. You can't do it in any other, any other um, branch of government. You can't, congressman can't have his staff promote you know, have tax people on taxpayer salaries do these things for you. And the other thing that she did, which is yeah. well, they also all have to make extra money because now they still have to pay off their student loans. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. They're not getting their. Uh, they're not going to get their money now. You're right. Especially if they're all going to Harvard. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, no. I, let me just throw in one thing. I was just going to say, so in, in my um, video making career, when I first got uh, here to the Washington, D.C. area, I did a lot of work for the federal government. And a lot of these videos were about ethics, 
for individual agencies. And so the agency, you know, it would be the Army, it would be FDIC, it would be Department of Labor. All of these agencies pretty much had the same rules. And the rule was that you couldn't take more than $25 in gifts, period. You know, there was, a, there was no disclosure. There was no nothing. You just could not take anything. So in other words, somebody couldn't take you, someone like me who worked for the government, couldn't take someone from the government out to dinner because, I mean, where could you get a dinner for under $25? Now, maybe I could take them for a bagel and some coffee, but that's about it. That's the rule. That's still the rule. That's the rule right now. Yeah. And I just can't, you know, that's why it's so hard to believe you know, that somebody can give you, like, put you on a private jet, fly you to a, a yacht that's going around the Caspian Sea or wherever. I just, <laughs> blows me away. Well, Justice Alito, that's, that's the next one, right? Yeah. And he had a very, I mean, I don't think he was kidding, but I think it was not a great defense. As you know, I think he was uh, some billionaire, right? Paul Singer uh, flew him somewhere on a private jet. And his response, I thought, was not the best. As, as by the way, none of them have great responses, but his was probably the worst response. What he was said, it? Well, the flight would have been empty. The seat would have been empty anyway, so it didn't really cost him any money. You know, yes, in theory, but does that mean I could walk into uh, any theater and say, hey, there's empty seats. I'm coming for free. It's not costing you money. Or actually, can I walk into an airline, any airline, say, hey, is the flight booked? No, I'm going to come for free. I dare you to do that. <laughs> yes, maybe I'll try tonight. But... Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the the free flight stuff, I mean, they're, you know, people who like work for the airlines only get those benefits because they work for the airlines. Right. So and that's like a contractual benefit that you get. Um, And yeah, if there's a paying passenger ahead of you, then, you know, you don't get to bump them off. Um, So, yeah, I mean, the logic is not like a one for one. It doesn't apply. but it would be nice if it did. <laughs> yeah. No, so yeah, I thought it was a crazy. It, it was a kind of a crazy. Maybe it's the first thought that comes that comes out. I think before the article came out, um, condemning his what he did or reporting on what he did, he wrote his own, um, his own editorial, defending what he did before it actually came out. And that was his main argument. Maybe not the best argument. Uh, you know, if there were empty seats anyway. I mean, you could say that about anything, really. You know, hey, I'll give you a a free hotel for a year in my in my hotel hotel room it'll be there'll be empty ones anyway but i'll give it to you for free not, not really well it's also just not the the money aspect of it i mean maybe more relate to it of having like a friend who has like an empty seat in their car on a road trip and invites you on that it's not so much the cost of it it's that you're buying this person's company and loyalty and time and companionship and camaraderie right so that's what it's about, but that's what you can't necessarily put a price tag on. Yeah, look, there should look, and most people will tell you there probably should be a serious code of ethics that binds them. I know we're in a very polarizing society right now, and it's hard to get these things done. But most people, I think, on both sides of the political spectrum, do think there should be some, some, not just self police. You know, if you look at it right now, they act as their own judge and jury in all these issues. That's, I mean. <sighs> This, I mean, that just seems it's like a judge being a judge over themselves in a murder case. All right. I shoot somebody and then I'm the judge in my own murder case. And I go, OK, well, let him go free. Let yeah, me let much. me go free. <laughs> I, I my, my feeling is there will be something one day. I think Justice Roberts would probably support some kind of code of ethics if I'm hearing some certain things he said. Um, 
because I, I think I think this just went too far. He refused to even show up. Congress invited him to come and testify about this, and he refused to show up. I still think he would be for a code of ethics. I think he didn't show up because he he thought it was a violation of the independent judiciary. He said certain things over the years, and he's kind of... But Congress does have an oversight responsibility for the administration and the other branches. Isn't that written into the Constitution? There's not, not really. There's not much they could do. There's only really two things that they could ever do to the Supreme Court. Well, forget impeachment. That's never going to... That never happens. That's not going to happen. They have the Congress has the power of the purse, right? They could defund the court to get what they want, right? Mm. Um, which hard to imagine happening. And in theory, the executive branch could prosecute for fines, for violating ethics, for doing different things. So mm. that's something that, at least in theory, can be done. So those are really the only two things, if you count impeachment, the only three things they could do, never done and probably never will be done. So just, I mean, wrapping this thing up, guys, and I know I just want to get sort of quickly weigh in. I mean, with all of this stuff, it just seems like with this new supermajority, they are just going in with a baseball bat in a china shop and they're just waving it around and just breaking everything. So, I mean, what does this mean for us as a society? I mean, how, how far is this going to go? Well, it's, it's going to go further and further to the right. However... What we're, what we're seeing in the last few years is Roberts and Kavanaugh are not break the whole China shop type of justices. They're pragmatic so far, incremental. So I think that you're going to have some cases where it's going to shift very, very conservative. And then you're going to have enough cases where Kavanaugh and Roberts are going to make sure that it stays somewhat mainstream. They read the papers. They hear what people are saying. They care what people are saying, I believe. So those two are probably going to try to restrain to some extent. And then you're going to have the other ones that are no restraint. Let's just go crazy and do everything right now. Well, Ellie, I mean, what about you? I mean, you're young. You've got your whole life ahead of you. I don't even know if I'm going to be here at the end of the week. But, I mean, you're looking <laughs> you're looking for decades and decades. I mean, what are they going to do? I mean, don't you, like, what the f hell are they going to do to me now? You know? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I feel like at this point... Because you're a woman. I mean, you only got the right to vote like 100 years ago. And now what are they going to take away from you? I didn't even know I had that right. <laughs> I mean, I, can, I just learned to read last week. Just learned to read. Now I'm learning to vote. But no, I think I think it's, you know, at this point, like I think, you know, my generation, we've just accepted, at least this is just me speaking on behalf of my generation, that the Supreme Court is no longer like just this one binding force for justice. It's just going to become this like political machine that's going to shift every decade or two, just kind of flip flop back and forth and they'll overturn certain decisions and then they'll make new decisions and overturn those. And it'll just kind of be this whole flip flop thing. Like it's just, you know, maybe don't write the history books in like pen anymore. It'll just all be pencil and then you can go in and erase it or scratch it out or whatever. Well, that's a pretty cynical point of view, though, isn't it? That that it's all just uh, political nonsense and everything is just going to blow back and forth depending on who happens to be in power at the moment. I mean, yes and no. Like, honestly, I forgot about the Supreme Court until this week. You know, I forgot that I've, it's been a whole year. I couldn't believe it's been a whole year since we covered the Supreme Court. So really, time flies. I don't I don't know. For me personally, I don't think it 
it'll affect me every now and then, but I'll just let them play their games. Not the first time in history this has happened. Remember, I was just watching a documentary recently on FDR. And remember, threats to pack the court. He had a lot of fights with the court regarding the New Deal. So, you know, these things happen. It was it was a pretty big fight back then. And hey, we survived it, right? We survived as a nation. So I'm sure we will again. Okay. We will persevere. We will, yes. we, we will, we will overcome. You know, as, right. a, as, a, as, a Mets, as a Mets as a Mets fan, it, we have a term. You gotta believe. You gotta believe. So. <laughs> that's that's like uh, Macy's and Santa Claus, right? Just just believe or something. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys. Well, it's time to close the docket on this episode, folks. In addition to my amazing co-hosts, Ellie and Bernice, I want to thank our esteemed guest, David Grover, a multi-year super lawyer award recipient in the New York City area for his great insights on the just-concluded Supreme Court term, couched in terms every normal human can understand. I believe he's now appeared seven times in the 53 episodes of Scandal Sheet, so he deserves some kind of award. Check out his contact information in the liner notes of this episode. We hope you'll follow or subscribe to Scandal Sheet on your favorite pod platform and share it with all your friends. We'd also love it if you'd leave us a shameless, over-the-top rave review on Apple Podcasts especially. That helps us build audience. Also, we want to hear from you. You can reach us online at scandalsheetpod.com, Facebook, or Twitter, or just send us an email to contact at scandalsheetpod.com. We'll see you next time on Scandal Sheet. Copyright 2023. Thad Helsley Media, LLC. All rights reserved.